0: Hello. Welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 13, Victory. In my last episode, I continued the discussion on the war on Japan in China. There was some discussion of Japan's efforts to pacify China in those areas that Japan had captured. It was a massive administrative undertaking by Japan. A largely failed effort to consolidate her China gains and additionally control those areas. We also learned about how the Sino-Japanese War had merged into the Greater World War. Japan's defeat in China became the same objective for China as well as the Allies. And at Cairo, Egypt, in November of 1943, the Allies, including China, met and discussed their plan for the defeat of Japan and the post-war geopolitical arrangement. By 1943, the United States formally recognized the nationalists as the leaders of China and Chiang Kai-shek, their leader. Finally, I ended the episode discussing Operation Ichigo, the enormous Japanese offensive from April of 1944 to the late fall of the same year. It had nearly destroyed the nationalist military force, not to mention its destruction of many other things. The operation changed the Allies' viewpoint of the nationalist and Chiang Kai-shek. In this episode, I close out the Sino-Japanese War and World War II. I want to discuss China's political situation at the end of the wars. I have talked in the past about the merger of the two wars, So a defeat of Japan would be a pivotal event for both wars. We'll also learn about the Western nation's plan for China and the Asia-Pacific alignment after the war. We will also learn that after these two wars, China still had major unfinished business, to put it mildly. I talked about in the last episode some of the post-Ichigo operation results and ramifications. One of those was the exposure of the deterioration of the Nationalist Army. The war with Japan had taken an obvious toll. Because the Nationalist Nanjing government... Dependent on its military forces, the army's deterioration mirrored onto the government, and it began to crumble. The united front between the Kuomintang and the Communists was also in tatters. Chiang Kai-shek was certainly aware of all of this, in many cases unable to change course. I am sure it was quite frustrating. Some of the reasons Chiang Kai-shek was unable to change the circumstances were, one, much of the nation's political power was too dispersed to local control, similar to the warlord problem. And two, perhaps the biggest reason for the deterioration was inflation. It was monetary inflation. Too much currency from printing and in circulation, enhanced by the massive military expenditures. Inflation was also caused by shortages in commodities and common supplies. The first couple of years of the Japanese war, inflation hovered around 40% annually. By the war's end, however, it was doubling every year. Another reason was the Japanese blockade of China was also having its effect. The blockade began in 1937, and it was progressively tightening. By the war's end, China's imports were only 10% of their pre-war level. The tender political weaknesses, inflation, and the blockade brought massive economic damage to China's domestic industries. The Nanjing government tried to prudently raise revenue and find more revenue sources. These largely failed to make a significant difference. In June of 1944, American Vice President Henry Wallace visited China during Operation Ichigo, the Americans persuaded a reluctant Chiang Kai shek to allow an American contingent to visit the communists at Yan'an. So began the Dixie mission. It officially began in July of 1944. Its purpose was to determine if the Americans wanted to establish a liaison with the CCP. The origin of the name Dixie Mission is not clear, but interesting. It is believed by some the name comes from the large number of Southerners in the mission. Others believe it was a rough but clever reference and comparison of the rebel communists with the Confederate States from the American Civil War. The Dixie Mission came at a fortuitous time for the CCP. By mid-1944 and the end of 1944, their star was ascending, mostly resulting from the Nationalist Trouble with Japan. Prior to Operation Ichigo, Chiang Kai-shek prevented any foreign observers from visiting the communists. The United States, to Mao Zedong, was a wow card. It sure seemed like the Americans fully supported Chiang Kai-shek and the Nanjing government. However, Mao Zedong knew winning the war with Japan was America's tantamount goal in the Pacific Theater and that might be exploited. Mao Zedong believed if his communists could show the mission that they were capable of defeating the Japan and stabilize China, they had a chance to gain American resources, such as what the nationalists had enjoyed. The Dixie mission was essentially a tacit but limited recognition by the USA of The CCP. There were doubts, however, about the direction China was going. In light of the Japanese success in the Ichigo campaign in the summer of 1944, General Stilwell, you will recall, he was the American military commander in charge of war operations in China, appealed to President Roosevelt that the Americans should take over Chinese war operations. Upon hearing that, Chiang Kai-shek vehemently objected directly to President Roosevelt. That objection probably had a hand in General Stilwell's recall in October of 1944. That was a blow to the CCB. It indicated to them, at least, the Americans were still supporting Chiang Kai-shek. Stilwell was replaced by Patrick Hurley. More on him later. Nonetheless, the Americans urged both the Nationalists and the CCP to form a coalition government. It was no coincidence that the CCP's 7th Plenum Congress that last met way back in 1928 was held the same time as the Guomindang's 6th National Congress in early 1945. The purpose of these two bodies' meetings was to plan and execute policy and goals for the future of China. Obviously, both competing with the other for recognition and attention. But by the end of 1944, FDR had already pivoted to Britain and Russia. At the Yalta Conference in February 1945, the Chinese were excluded. It is important I focus a little more on what was going on politically in China about this same time. The Americans particularly were looking to pivot or seriously look at or focus on the communist in northwest China. The Americans' early assessment of the CCP was encouraging. The Americans believed the communists were hardworking and devoted to To working within an international order. The CCP seized upon the opportunity when they had it, offering assistance to downed American airmen and to keep an open line of communication with the United States. And the Communists understood the urgency of defeating Japan. That all, however, had to be done carefully. The Communists did not want it to appear that they were not in full support of the Nationalist government. In any event, during the Dixie Mission, the Americans saw an entirely different attitude in the Communists than they had seen with the Nationalists. Some described Yan'an as a place full of energy and vigor and hustle, unlike the Nationalist controlled areas. The communists wanted American support, or at least put pressure on the nationalists to share power. Mao Zedong stressed that only through a coalition government could China be stabilized. Talk of the continuation of the bloody civil war between the nationalists and the CCP was used as a carrot to put pressure on the nationalists to share power to all of this the americans never made a commitment to the ccp understanding the risks that that decision would have to china the surrender of the japanese empire was of course a momentous event china more impacted by that than perhaps any other country It signified the end of foreign aggression in China. There was actually hope for lasting peace. Strangely, however, Japan's surrender did not completely end the fighting in China. It was complicated. In some areas in China, the Japanese forces were still fighting the communists. Peace was never made between those two sides. Japanese forces refused to surrender to communist forces, and they held their positions. Mao Zedong knew the great fight in China still laid ahead. At the end of World War II, China had been relegated to a backseat role in secondary concerns on the international scene. China's loss of prominence was mostly her own fault. The looming resurgence of the Chinese civil war between the nationalists and the communists repelled the international community from further involvement in Chinese affairs. After all, the international community had just ended the devastating world war and had no appetite for more. The lack of national unity in China also discouraged foreign intervention. It is perhaps important at this point, I remind everyone, that the United States' goal with China was to unify it. The the idea was only that a unified China could become an Asian power after the war. While a sensible goal, I suppose, you listening to this can decide whether or not the United States accomplished its objective. Also important to remember that after the Cairo Conference in late 1943, FDR and some of the members of the U.S. military began having doubts about Chiang Kai-shek's leadership. Some doubted he was capable of governing a big, powerful nation a growing number of Western officials began to believe that Chiang Kai-shek was too Chinese, a centric, a Chinese ideologue. That his limited education was a hindrance to him ever becoming a dynamic, liberal-minded stalwart of democracy and Western ideals. Let's not forget The period between the Yalta Conference in early 1945 and the Japanese surrender in that late summer saw a change in the United States' Asian policy. Unlike the United States' German post-war policy, the United States was firm about Japan. Japan would be deprived of its war machinery and thoroughly controlled so as never to be a menace. It appeared then the Western nations would not be able to depend on China to act as an Asian policeman. Let's not forget about Russia. It too played a role in China. In 1943, the Russians announced their entry into the war against Japan. After the Yalta Conference, Russia was basically left to deal with China, particularly Manchuria. Russia officially declared war against Japan on August 8, 1945, a week before Japan's surrender. At the Yalta Conference, the Russians stated that they would enter the war against Japan about three months after Germany was defeated. Russia not only wanted Manchuria in China and its naval base at Port Arthur, now modern-day Dalian, it also wanted a share with China in the Manchurian Railway. Gone was the post-war vision of the four-power alliance of the United States, England, Russia, and China. Instead, the Western powers would proceed without China, If there was a silver lining in this for China, it was the acceptance that the nationalists were the government of China and that Chiang Kai-shek could remain as her dominant figure. Chiang Kai-shek's goal at that time was to either delay or deny recognition of the CCP by the same Western allies. Chiang Kai-shek had also been working with Russian officials on a separate alliance. On August 14, 1945, China and the the USSR agreed to the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Alliance the same day as Japan's surrender. The treaty gave Chiang Kai-shek what he wanted. It was a pledge by the Soviet Union of recognition and non-interference and a promise to aid, militarily if needed, the nationalist government in China. However, this was all fleeting. The treaty gave Russia more rights and possessions in China than what they held before the war, before the Russo-Japanese War at the turn of the century. Russian forces quickly swept into China and overran Manchuria and North Korea. Just five days after China and Russia's alliance was official, Russian and CCP military forces linked up for the first time. In my next episode, I want to talk about the actual formal surrender of Japan and where that left the involved nations militarily there were immediate political realities of surrender realities for china the nationalists and the communists as well as the others will all be discussed we will learn about the fading hopes for peaceful resolution in china particularly after the united states led efforts to mediate a resolution and the fleeting notion that a coalition government might work if it could ever be agreed to. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.